0: I appreciated the testimonies earlier about God's faithfulness in marriage and uh, faithful spouses. and I let's start with a question here today. Do we often find our faith to be timid or weak? Or do we lack courage in our faith? If we were to ask ourselves, what are the ingredients of bold and courageous faith, what would we say? What are the ingredients of bold and courageous faith? Well, let's go back to the Mark chapter 7. And we started, uh, last couple weeks here, we've been in Mark chapter 7. In the first 23 verses, we came across the self-righteous, self-exalting religious Pharisees that would not touch anything that was against their traditions or the things that they considered to be defiled. <clears throat> and the problem with the Pharisees was, They felt they had no need. They saw everybody else but sinners as sinners, but not themselves. And when the Pharisee prayed in Luke 18, God, I thank you, I am not like other men. He could have simply just prayed, God, I don't need you. Other people need you, but not me. And so their faith was based upon their works. And they lacked the faith of the woman that had the demon possessed daughter that we studied last week in verses 24 to 30, and this woman's bold faith is in stark contrast to the Pharisees, and we'll see that it's also in contrast to the disciples when they wondered if Jesus was really there for the people. So what would make this woman have the courage to approach Jesus in faith? As we studied last week, this woman came to realize that in the situation with her daughter, there was nothing She could do, which is a picture of us. There is nothing we can do without Christ. We are born with a terminal condition that ends in death, and there's nothing we can do about it. We cannot change our situation, and there's no hope for our condition apart from God's grace. As we were talking about the situations around the world, we're often amazed and disgusted at how fast we see society fall apart and have struggles. But what do we do about the evil we see in our own lives? One of the greatest things the gospel does for us is open our eyes to our own depth of need. And this woman came to Jesus in desperation because she realized that there was nothing she could do to make her situation better. And she came with hope that Jesus could actually resolve the situation. She had a remarkable response of faith that we should find astonishing when she says, I would gladly come as a dog and eat a few crumbs from the Lord's table. What a response of desperation and hope with the added ingredient of humility. A kind of humility that few of us really understand. And do we agree with the diagnosis of our lives that the only thing we bring to God is our sin and a desperate need of grace? If you could spare a few crumbs, Lord, I would gladly receive them. The diagnosis of scripture is that our only hope is in Jesus. And I find it amazing that this story of humility and life-changing faith follows the story of the Pharisees' arrogance in trusting their traditions. So today we move on to the story about a man who knew about the need of deafness, and his inability to talk, and what happened when he encountered God's power and God's compassion. So I'm going to call this message today, as we look at this passage, God's power and God's compassion. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the stories that are recorded here for us of this woman who came to you in desperation and for this deaf man who you had compassion on, and the crowd of 4,000 that you fed. Grant us that we would receive your compassion and your mercy. Open your word to us. Come and meet with us. For truly we are needy people. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to start here in Mark chapter 7 and verses 31 to 37. And I'm going to call these Versus God's power and compassion for an individual. Let's pick up in verse 31. And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of the Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears and spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said unto him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he he spake plain. And he charged them that they should tell no one. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it. And they were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. So we start with the setting here in verse 31. As Jesus has been traveling through a loop to the north and west of the Sea of Galilee, through Tyre, Sidon, and the Decapolis, it's a loop of about 120 miles, and he ends up back southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And this trip and the ministry he's been doing that we've been studying here has taken about six months is what it's thought to have taken. And we come to a specific story of Jesus healing a specific man and this story is only included in the gospel of mark so turn back to mark chapter 6 let's read a few verses there mark 6:54 and when he got out of the boat the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds To wherever they heard he was, and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of the garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Isn't it sufficient enough that the scripture tells us that Jesus healed everybody? Jesus healed everybody. Okay, what more do you need to know? Why do we have a specific story about a specific deaf man? One reason is given to us in Isaiah. That this story is the fulfillment of prophecy. The Greek word for speech impediment here only occurs once in the New Testament, right here in this story. it's a reference to Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. We'll read these two verses to you. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap as a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. What a tremendous blessing for this man that God would heal him. Prior to this, in Isaiah 34, God was proclaiming judgment. And then he declares how God will bless the land by healing the sick. And ultimately, we know that when Jesus returns, he will wipe all tears away, and there will be no more pain. The story of Jesus healing this man should encourage us for what God has planned for the future of his children. And in this story, we are not told who brought this man to Jesus. We don't even know his name. But the people that were there with him, they had hope for him. And the object of their hope was Jesus because his friends had heard what this deaf man couldn't hear. Maybe if we take our deaf, mute man to Jesus... Jesus can heal him. and true faith owns personal desperation, and our only hope is outside of us in the power and compassion of God for sinners just like this man and like us. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, Colossians 2.6. So Jesus takes this man aside, privately, puts his fingers in his ears, and it's a word of thrusting. He actually, he's touching him, of physical contact. He spits, touches his tongue, and it's a picture of God aggressively pursuing this man with need. He, Jesus looks up to heaven, speaks one word, aphaphatha, that is, be opened. Immediately, his ears are open, his tongue is loosed, so that he could hear... And speak plainly. He was set free from his limitations, and now he had the gift of hearing and could also articulate to the glory of God. And he could do so clearly. There was not a time of learning to speak. He went from minimal speech to clear speech, all limitations immediately removed. And as Mark has presented the miracles, many are teaching the gospel truths. And that's what happens to every Christian. Before the Holy Spirit opens our heart, we are deaf to the things of God, which is a metaphor for what God does for us. He doesn't say to us we need to try harder to fix our problems. He doesn't guess at life. Jesus is life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he invades our dead soul with his life-giving Holy Spirit. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2. And there's a theme we have seen in Mark. It is that God doesn't want to only be known as the miracle man that heals all the people, but he wants the gospel to be front and center. And many times he tells people to remain quiet because he's not ready for that final collision with the Pharisees because there's more work to do. So think about it. The man in our story has spent his life not speaking clearly and now he can speak clearly and Jesus tells him what? Don't tell anybody. Pretty brutal thing to do. But I've already been quiet. I want to talk and it would be difficult for this man to be quiet. Have you ever taken time an effort to help somebody only to have them take advantage of you? I asked one of the men here in the church if he had ever been taken advantage of his generosity. You ever help anybody and somebody take advantage of you? And his answer was many times. Let us not grow weary in good and doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. How do we respond when people return evil for our good? With cheerfulness. The one who does acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness, Romans 12.8 tells us. We all know the answer, but many times we find it so difficult to do. Do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12.21. As Jesus demonstrates, God's grace is sufficient for any trial. The crowd is then astonished beyond measure. The people that were around Jesus had something to say that describes the way Jesus had lived his life. He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And this is something we should say to ourselves over and over again. Jesus does all things well. Jesus does all things well. He lived perfectly. He died sufficiently. He rose from the dead gloriously. And all his promises are perfect and faithful. Jesus does all things well. And this is the center of our hope that Jesus does all things well because we do not. There is one place we find security and life and hope and grace and that place is in Jesus that does all things well and he's my savior. We should never doubt him or be fearful of the future. He has never been disloyal and he never breaks his promises. As we say that Jesus... Does all things well. We should ask ourselves this question. Will we live our lives in joyful submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. No matter what happens this week. And Mark brings this section to an end. Jesus does all things well. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is seeking sand. The woman was fed a few crumbs from God's table. The deaf man had, his, had the finger of God invade his ears. The finger of God touched his tongue. And may we see ourselves as needing people who receive God's grace. In his life, Jesus never, did, Jesus never did anything poorly. When he set his face to go to Jerusalem in obedience to his father, he did it well. There was no failure in his sacrifice for our sins. There is no blemish in his work. And our Heavenly Father made the same statement from heaven at his baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What a tremendous Savior we have. And miracles, as in this miracle, by definition are rare events. Miracles are not common. More often, God grants us grace for the struggles that we face rather than miraculously healing us like the man in our story. How do we face our trials and our needs? I want to end this section with a story from the year 2000. James Montgomery Boyce, well-known preacher, he received a terminal cancer diagnosis of cancer, and from the time of his diagnosis to his passing was six weeks. And his friends were really disturbed at the thought of losing their good friend, and Dr. Boyce addressed the, conversa- his, the congregation concerning how to pray for him in his time of illness. And I want to read a quote from him about what he said as he faced his terminal illness. So, quote, Above all, I would say, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. It was not by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I can call down from my father ten legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet that is the place where God is most glorified. If I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God, and that's not novel. We have talked about the sovereignty of God here forever. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental it is not as if God somehow forgot what is going on and something slipped by. God does everything according to his will. Continuing quoting from him, but what I've been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. God's in charge, but he doesn't care. But that's not it at all. God is not only the one in charge. God is also good. Everything he does is good. In Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that we have the opportunity by the renewal of our minds, that is, how we think about things, actually to prove what God's will is. And then it says his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It is good. Is it good and pleasing and perfect to God? Yes, of course. But the point of it is that it's good and pleasing and perfect to us. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you change it, you'd make it worse. It would not be good. So that's the way we want to accept it. Move forward, and who knows what God will do. End quote. And that's a good question. Since God's will is good, pleasing, And perfect to God. Does God's will please us? God is in charge of this world. He is sovereign. And he cares for each of us. May we be at peace in our present situations. And trust God. Living by faith. Because he does all things well. The same God that created the heavens and the earth. Also created the deaf and mute man. And then he took the step of healing the deaf and mute man, and he is the same God working in our lives. He redeems us, heals us of our spiritual deafness and spiritual muteness, so we have the ability to hear God through his word and to speak of his glory to others. Let's move on now to chapter 8, verse 1. And I'm going to call this God's power and compassion for a multitude. Let's read the first nine verses here. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and said unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from afar. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves have you? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave things and break, and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they did set them before the people, and they had a few small fishes, and blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled, and they took up with the broken meat that was left seven baskets, and they that had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. I find it amazing, just out of this whole story, that Jesus taught 4,000 people for three days without a microphone. I'm I'm doing a little bit of public speaking today for less than an hour with a microphone, and I just want to give praise to God for the amazing teaching ministry of Jesus, that he was there teaching these people for three days, 4,000 people. What a tremendous event that would have been. And imagine being at a three-day Bible conference, learning from God himself. Maybe it started out as a one-day event, and the crowd was so blessed that they didn't want to leave, and they ended up staying longer than anticipated, and they were not sufficiently prepared for the meals, which led to the situation that this crowd was in. And now look at verse 2 where Jesus said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And this theme of compassion has been repeated a few times here and in many other passages. Uh, Matthew 9.36, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Uh, Matthew 14.14, when Jesus saw a great multitude and was moved compassion towards them and healed their sick. And there's some words that we, can f- that we use that can be confusing. So let's take a minute and define a couple common words that we use. Those words are empathy, sympathy, and compassion. Empathy means that we feel what a person is feeling. We empathize with their situation. Sympathy means we understand what a person is feeling. And we may send sympathy cards to our friends so they, so they know that we are aware of their situation and we're praying for them. Compassion is taking empathy and sympathy to the next level as compassion is the action that relieves the suffering of another person. Compassion is also what we are commanded to do towards each other. Compassion is also a renewable resource. Through empathy, we can feel the pain or joy of another person. But it's a common problem among healthcare workers to have something called empathy fatigue. But when we extend the effort through compassion to alleviate someone's pain, then we're less likely to burn out through compassion. By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart toward him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.16 tells us. What did Jesus do when he saw the people in need? He moved with compassion. He took action. So in these stories that we've been looking at, at the physical needs of a woman's daughter, a man's health needs, and now 4,000 people, and this crowd has been hungry to hear Jesus teach, but there's two things that stand out in this story. First is the amazing compassion of Jesus for what we would consider as the incidental needs of this crowd. And the heart of the gospel is the salvation of souls, and Jesus' primary mission was to come and save souls. And at the same time, he did not look at this crowd and see only souls to save without their body. He also saw the people and their physical needs. He is our Savior, and he is also our creator that takes ownership of his creation, He cares for both our spiritual and physical needs. The hunger of this crowd was nothing in comparison to the salvation he was going to purchase for people in the crowd, but he still went and purchased a meal for them through his own power and glory. God is our creator, and he knows that we live in the day-to-day details of life, and God is not irritated when we bring to him our needs. We have a wonderful Savior who is compassionate for our soul, And he's also compassionate for our bodily needs. Second, look at how the disciples were not prepared for this moment in verse 4. The disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? How many demonstrations of power, of God's power, and God's willingness to provide for the needs of the people will these disciples need to see before they actually trust God and live by faith? How is it possible that they ask the same question again as they seem utterly unprepared for this moment? They have been eyewitnesses of God's power in similar situations, and yet they fall flat again. What should their response be? Lord, you're able. Please pray for these seven loaves we have, and we're ready to serve at your command. So now on to the event. We know what happens here is similar to chapter 6 where Jesus took a sack lunch and turned it into a meal for 5,000 people with plenty of leftovers. And these stories must be uh, two unique events and not repeated, not misquoted here because if you look down in chapter 8 later in verse 19 and 20, Jesus refers to them as two different events. In verse 19, when I break the five loaves among the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments took you up? And they said 12. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took you up? And they said seven. So Jesus repeats both events as unique. So let's look at the differences between the stories between uh, chapter 6, verse 34, and here in chapter 8. They had different food source at the beginning, first one was, this one is seven loaves, the other one was five loaves. There's different descriptions for the fish. One was a sardine, and one is a general word for fish. And the number of leftovers are different. Look at the crowd. (coughs) 5,000, 4,000, what's the difference? Well, there is. If you look at the details there, for the 5,000, it says it was 5,000 men besides women and children. For the 4,000, it says 4,000 people. So, if we take 4,000 as a total count in this story. For the 5,000, they were asked to set, and it says green grass. Here, they're asked to sit on the ground. So, I asked our local Chick fil A management expert here how many, in a typical business day, how many meals does a Chick fil A serve? How many meals are prepared and go through that store? Guessing. 4,000. I, I, was, I was amazed. I was wondering, is, is it 4,000? He says, it is. Typical Chick-fil-A store that he works at goes through 4,000 meals on a typical business day. How many people does it take to serve those 4,000 meals, I asked him. Well, two shifts at 30 people each. That's about at least 60 people to do that. And then you have supply chain and the farmers and everything else before the store. So that, that's a, this Miracle here is astonishing this is an astonishing miracle that Jesus would take seven loaves and divide it out and feed four thousand people. What a tremendous miracle it is Why two similar stories to show that God is full of compassion and that teaches his disciples and us that this miracle wasn't an accident. Jesus has been going through this region with the miracles ablazing everywhere. He is raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, healing everybody, and the religious leaders were convinced that these miracles were being accomplished by the power of Satan. I find it thrilling that God has had compassion on us to give himself to us as a bread of life. He is the bread of life that's come for us. Finally, Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, nor railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. 1 Peter 3.8 Do we find ourselves in circumstances that we fail to understand the power of God's grace and the compassion of his mercy? Is God able to meet our needs? Yes, he is. So then, why do we sometimes conclude that God is unwilling to meet our needs or that he doesn't care for us? Do we ever doubt God's compassion to us, his children? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Be encouraged. The fact that, God, that Jesus cared for the physical needs of this large crowd should greatly encourage us as an example that he is willing to care for us. And as Jesus multiplied the bread that day, may grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, second Peter one and two. My formal education is as an engineer, which includes a little bit of math. But I recently learned an important math equation from a theologian, and it goes like this divine power plus divine compassion equals everything we need. God's power and God's compassion. He's healed the deaf, mute man. He's met the lunch needs of 4,000 people, and He is everything that we need. So, a week ago, Saturday, a week and a day ago, as I was getting ready to sit down and spend some quality time studying God's Word, work on the sermon, and I thought these verses really had some good points to make for us about compassion, and I was getting ready to sit down and put them on paper and then something happened my neighbor Bruce stopped by to see me and this is one of our Christian neighbors that lives down the street and we love him and his wife very much and he loves the Lord and he went on to explain that he's having ankle surgery here in a few weeks and he's going to have to sit with his ankle above his nose for a while and he was asking for some help getting things ready around his house for time of surgery And there I was, feeling time pressure to work on sermon about compassion towards people. And my friend shows up. I just love the way the Lord works. Four times the Psalms repeats the same words. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Psalms 145 goes on to say, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. When we see the Lord's compassion on these people and also to us, why should we do any less for each other? God's power plus God's compassion equals everything we need. What is the Christian's motivation for showing compassion to others for their body and soul? Because God has done so much for us. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the compassion you had on the crowd and these people and also that you have on us each day. Grant us to see afresh what you have done for us, the salvation you've provided, and may we be filled with joy and be faithful serving you in all things, in all things that you bring across our way. In Christ's name. Amen.